Hey, I just want to welcome you again here today, and I want to say if you're here for the first time, we're excited that you're worshiping with us, excited to be here at Alpine Church in Brigham City. My name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at our Alpine Logan campus. Been in that role for about four years now, and I'm really excited to be with you guys today as we go through this series that we started a few weeks ago called Jesus in Genesis. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been pointing out the fact that Jesus isn't just in the New Testament in the Bible. Now, that's where we first see him mentioned by name, but actually we know that Jesus can be found throughout the entire Bible. He can be found cover to cover. And so I hope that you've been encouraged. I hope that you've been excited as you've maybe seen Jesus show up in some places that you hadn't seen him before. You know, the Bible, even though it was written over a period of almost 2,000 years and by approximately 40 different authors, tells one unified story. And the central figure of that story is Jesus Christ. So I hope that that's brought you some encouragement. I hope maybe some of you have picked up some things. You're like, wow, I've never seen Jesus there, even though he's been there all along. That makes me think of Easter eggs. You know, Easter eggs, you know, Easter's a couple weeks away, but I'm not talking about the kind of Easter eggs that we hide with candy in them or the kind that we die. I'm talking about Easter eggs in movies, TV shows, or video games. Any movie buffs or gamers who know what I'm talking about when I use the term Easter eggs, right? If you're not familiar with that term, they are hidden figures, references, and clues that you see in movies or in a video game. And if you Google the term, Google describes them as secret love letters from the creator to their fans. So when you see Jesus in the Old Testament, it's like a secret love letter from the creator of the universe to us. So if you're not familiar with these stories, let me just give you some examples. Maybe you guys can look for these when you get home tonight. So we'll go old school with the first one, but in the movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, for you older folks that are in here and maybe remember that show, there's a scene where Harrison Ford is showing off this golden artifact, and if you look really closely on the hieroglyphics, you'll see R2-D2 and C-3PO on that artifact. So that's an example of an Easter egg. Or if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, I wasn't always a pastor, I'm not saying you should go see it, but if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, there is a Starbucks coffee cup in every scene of that movie, and I bet you've never noticed that. Or if you have young children at home, you've probably seen Frozen, right? Did you know that you can see Rapunzel and Flynn going into the castle for Elsa's coronation ceremony? So those are some examples of Easter eggs. And the, the thing with Easter eggs is they've been there all the time, but you probably never noticed them. But then once you see them, it's, it's kind of tough to take your eyes off them. And that's how it is with Jesus in the Old Testament. So that leads us into our first point. Let's kind of review where we've been. Here we go. So over the last couple of weeks, we started in the first week with Jesus reverses the curse. And we looked at this beautiful promise that God makes all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where he talks about how the offspring of the serpent is going to strike the offspring of the woman on the heel, but the offspring of the woman is going to crush the devil's head. And then we see Jesus fulfill that as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, takes on flesh and becomes the offspring of the woman. And he lives the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And then he goes to the cross and he crushes the devil's head when he is the perfect sacrifice. And then last week we looked at Genesis chapter 14 and this priest Melchizedek who kind of appears out of nowhere. In fact, we really don't see him anywhere else in Scripture except in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is our high priest even greater than Melchizedek. 
And so the role of a priest is to be a mediator between God and man. And we saw how Jesus' perfect life and his death on the cross, he was the perfect mediator between a perfect, righteous God and a broken, sinful people like us. Now today we're going to look at Genesis 22 and we're going to see how Jesus is the son on the altar. So if you have your Bible with you or your Bible app, let's go to Genesis 22 and we're going to see that Genesis 22 provides one of the most powerful types of Christ in the Bible. It's a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. And this passage connects to the work of Christ on the cross in five ways that we're going to highlight today. Now there are different types of Christ in the Bible. But one of these is a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus would do on the cross. So foreshadowing is a hint of of something that's going to come. It's an indication of an event that's going to occur later. Now the Bible is certainly more than just a great literary work. But it is a great literary work. We know that it's the very words of God, that it was God-breathed. And like many other good books, the Bible uses foreshadowing to give us a hint of things to come, of prophecies that are going to be fulfilled, and of promises that are going to be kept. And we see a great example of this in Genesis 22 in the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you're probably really familiar with this story. It's one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. You probably heard it at least once a year in Sunday school growing up, but I don't want to assume that everyone knows the story. So I want to just give you some background and kind of a general overview on this story of Abraham and Isaac. So if we pick up where we left off last week between Abraham and Melchizedek, shortly after that, God tells Abraham, I will be your shield and your very great reward. And Abraham kind of has a little bit of a pity party, and he says, well, God, what can you really give me when I don't even have a child? And my servant is going to be my heir. And God says, your servant is not going to be your heir. And he takes him outside and he has him look in the sky and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then Abraham and his wife Sarah get impatient with God's timing. And Sarah tells Abraham, why don't you sleep with my servant and I'll have a child through her. Big surprise, that doesn't work out very well. Thus began the long-running pattern of husbands getting in trouble with their wives for doing what their wives asked them to do in the first place. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Then God recommits this promise. God tells Abraham, no, I am going to bless you. Your wife Sarah is going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. And it is through Isaac that your descendants will be numerous as the stars in the sky. That's an important part of the promise. God specifically tells him it is through Isaac. Shortly after that, Sarah does have a child, just like God promised, because when God promises something, he always delivers. Then in Genesis chapter 2, God calls out to Abraham, and he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. Now, parents, I can promise you, God is not calling you to sacrifice your children. (laughs) No matter what you may think he's saying sometimes or how annoying they get, you are not supposed to sacrifice them as a burnt offering. In fact, spoiler alert, Abraham doesn't follow through with it either. Okay, God doesn't call him to do that. But what we're going to see today is how the story of Abraham and Isaac foreshadows what Jesus would do for you and me on the cross. So here we go with this first connection. Isaac and Jesus were one and only sons born by the power and the will of God. 
Genesis chapter 22. Here we go. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. It's almost like you can hear God anticipating the confusion that Abraham's going to have, right? He's very specific. He says, yes, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much. Because he knew Abraham in his mind is thinking, surely you don't mean Isaac. Surely you don't mean this, this child that you promised to give me. And God says, yes, Isaac, your only son whom you love so much. And as a dad, I think, man, what a punch to the gut. And how did Abraham respond? He obeyed immediately. In fact, verse 3 says that early the very next morning, Abraham and his two servants and Isaac headed to where God had called them to go. That gives me so much hope. So much hope that God can build my faith. Because this is the same Abraham who didn't have faith in God's timing just a little bit earlier, right? And had the big mishap with his wife and with, with Haggai. This is the same Abraham who had told guys two different times, Sarah's not my wife, she's my sister, because he didn't have a strong enough faith. But God never gave up on him. And then we see in Hebrews that Abraham is committed as a great man of faith, and this is one of the big reasons, because he was willing to give up even his son. So that gives me so much hope that God can still use me even when my faith is weak, and that as I walk with him, he can still build my faith. I want to show you how this connects to Jesus on the cross, this idea of a one and only son in John 3.16. So we've got the Genesis passage on the left, John 3.16 on the right, probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I want you to keep in mind that John knew the original wording in this Genesis story about Isaac and this idea of one and only son. So he's being very intentional here to use that same language. Because he knows when his audience hears this, this phrase, one and only son, they're probably going to think back to Abraham and Isaac to a story they had heard numerous times growing up as a Jew in that culture. And this connection regarding a one and only son goes even deeper it's more than the fact that they were both one and only sons. It's the fact that they were both miracles, even to be born, that both of them, God had to work in his power to even make it happen. Let me put a couple of verses side by side and show what I'm talking about. First one is Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It says, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, if we compare that to Luke 1, when the angel's visiting Mary, we'll see this connection here. The angel says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. 
So in that Genesis passage, we've backed up a little bit to where God told Sarah she's going to have a son. Now, Sarah would have been about 90 years old at this time. Abraham would have been about 100. So she's well past childbearing age. The only way she can conceive and give birth is if God does a work, is if God performs a miracle. And we see that same connection with Mary. Mary's confused when the angel first brings her the news, and she says, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. See, Luke is being very intentional, just like John did, in pointing out the fact that the birth of, of the Messiah was miraculous, just like the birth of Isaac was miraculous. There's a lot of connection here, a lot of foreshadowing that we talked about before. That brings us to connection number two. The sons carried wood on their backs as they marched toward their death. So Genesis 22, 6. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. So Isaac's not only going to be burnt as an offering, he had to carry the wood up the mountain that Abraham was going to use. Talk about the worst chore ever. Like, I don't know if we have any teenagers in here. Isaac would have been about 14, 15 years old at this time. So the next time you want to complain about how unfair the chores are that your mom and dad ask you to do, it could be worse. Right? Vacuuming, cleaning your room, taking out the trash, even cleaning the bathroom doesn't stack up to carrying the wood on your shoulders that's going to be used to burn you as an offering. Now, he didn't have to go through it, but let's see how this idea of carrying the wood foreshadows what Jesus did for us. John 19, 17, and 18, it says, Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they nailed him to the cross. Now, before you say, come on, Pastor John, aren't you just stretching it a little bit here? I mean, that's kind of reaching. Let me just say this. Did you know that 400 years before Jesus went to the cross, a, a rabbi, as he was teaching on this passage of Abraham and Isaac, said, man, this looks a awful lot like a Roman crucifixion. Because in that culture, when you were crucified, you had to carry your cross to the place of execution. So both sons had to carry wood on their back as they marched to their death. And when we read the other Gospels, we know that Jesus couldn't even carry his the whole way. That he was so weakened by the beating that he took, they had to pull a man out of the crowd to finish it for him. But both of the sons carried wood as they marched to their death. Connection number three. The sons obeyed their fathers in quiet determination. Pastor Eric said he'd pay me $20 if I read that twice. The sons obeyed their fathers in quiet determination. See, Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Father, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. See, Isaac was no dummy. He saw that his dad had the fire and the knife, and he's carrying the wood. Isaac knows there's going to be a sacrifice. Isaac knows something is up. And even though Abraham obeyed immediately, you know Abraham had to be torn up inside. And our kids can sense that, can't they? It's amazing to me how my teenagers, I have three teenagers right now, they can be oblivious to anything going on around them. But if there's any sort of friction between my wife and I, they sense it. Or if there's any sort of kind of inner turmoil in me that's just eating me up, they sense it. And you know Abraham had to be a mess inside. And so Isaac picks up on it and he says, uh, Dad, where's the sheep? 
Abraham says, God will provide a sheep, my son. And then I love that next line. It says, and they walked on together. Now keep in mind, Isaac's a teenager. Abraham's about 110. I don't know if Isaac could have taken Abraham at this point, but he definitely could have outrun him. I can guarantee you that. But it says they walked on together. Father and son stepping out in faith together. As a dad, as a man, if that doesn't get you excited, man, I don't know what does. I want to pause here for one second, and and I want to share with you one of the reasons I think Isaac trusted Abraham. See, I'll bet that Abraham had told Isaac many, many times that Isaac was a fulfillment of a promise from God. I bet he told him that his birth was miraculous. And I'll bet he told Isaac many, many times that he he said, Isaac, God has promised me that through you, our descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Through you, Isaac, God is going to bless all nations. And so they walked in faith together. Isaac wasn't just trusting in Abraham. He was trusting in the promises that God had given his father. So as a parent, I want to ask you, are you talking to your kids about God's faithfulness? Are you talking to your kids about the promises that God has kept in your life? Are you telling your kids that God has a plan for them, that God has a purpose for them? And lastly, are you walking out in faith? We can't expect our kids to walk somewhere that we're not walking ourselves. And then as we do that, we can walk in faith together. So let's move on to the New Testament and see how Jesus modeled this quiet determination. So we've got the Genesis passage on the left, Matthew 26, 39 on the right. It's talking about Jesus. It says, He went on a little farther and He bowed with His face to the ground praying, My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. I believe the full humanity of Jesus Christ is on display more powerfully here than probably any other passage in the Bible. See, we, we know that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Like Isaac, Jesus wasn't ignorant about what was getting ready to happen. Jesus knew how brutal this was going to be. And not just the physical pain, which is scary enough, but think about it. Jesus knew that when he took our sins upon himself on the cross, he was going to be separated from the Father. A perfect relationship they had enjoyed from all eternity, but it was going to be temporarily severed when Jesus took our sins on himself, and that rocked Jesus to the core. And so he pleads. I mean, this is Jesus begging here. He's begging, my Father, if it's possible, if there's any way Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. See, when we read that, we typically just put one sentence right after the other. But I wonder, how long was the pause between me and yet? Is it 30 seconds? Three minutes? I don't know. Scripture doesn't really tell us. But I know in this time... Jesus, being fully human, wrestled with the consequences of God's redemptive plan. But then, like Isaac, he stepped forward in faith, and he walked together with his father to the cross. And we see more details about this quiet determination in an Old Testament passage in Isaiah, and then also we see it fulfilled in Matthew 27, 12 through 14. Let's take a look at that together. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, this this kind of beautiful passage about the Messiah says, he was oppressed and treated harshly, 
yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. And we see the fulfillment of that in Matthew 27. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges. See, you and I have the, the advantage of hindsight as we read Isaiah, and we know that that's talking about the Messiah. And then we see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. As Jesus goes through this facade of a trial, and they levy phony charge after phony charge after phony charge against him, and he just takes it. He just remains silent. And he did that because Jesus was fulfilling yet another prophecy made about him in Isaiah. He remained silent before his accusers. That brings us to connection number four. God, sorry, now I'm looking at my confidence screen. I got off. The Father's envisioned resurrection on the way to the altar. The Father's envisioned resurrection on the way to the altar. Now, you might want to push back on that a little bit and say, wait a minute, are you sure Abraham was envisioning resurrection? Or was he just confident that God wasn't going to make him go through it? Well, if Genesis was the only account of this story, I would probably agree with you, but it's not the only account. See, the author of Hebrews also talks about this. And I want you to remember that the author of Hebrews is the same author as the author of the Genesis story, Almighty God himself. Because all scripture is God breathed. So that means that the Hebrew story is just as relevant, just as factual, just as accurate as the Genesis story is. So I want to take a look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and 19. He says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. See, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God could bring him back to life again. God could resurrect him. I think Abraham hoped he wouldn't have to go through with it. Abraham hoped God would provide a sheep in his place. But Abraham knew God was faithful. Abraham knew that God had promised him that it was through Isaac that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So Abraham knew that if he had to go through with it, God would bring Isaac back from the dead. He had resurrection on his mind. See that again in another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, talking about the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So that part you see underlined there that says he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's a prophecy of the resurrection. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus did go to the cross. He died and he was buried. But three days later, he rose again. It's the fulfillment of that promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, when he would crush sin and death. So God didn't just have resurrection on his mind when Jesus went to the cross. God has resurrection on his mind all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when he made the promise. That's connection number four, and that brings us to the last one, connection number five. God provided 
the substitute. In both stories, God provided the substitute. Now, many of you know how the story of Abraham and Isaac is, but some of you may not. And so I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger and, and wonder, well, what happens? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 22. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Urah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, prior to verse 13, we see that Abraham had built an altar. He had arranged the wood on it. And he had bound Isaac and laid him on top of it. And I can only imagine what was going through Isaac's mind and Abraham's mind as we get to this point of the story. See, if Isaac didn't know what was going to happen earlier, he certainly knew by now. He's just laying there on the altar with his hands bound. And as he watches his dad draw back the knife and get ready to slay him. You know, was Abraham reassuring him the whole time and talking to him, son, God will provide? Or was he silent? We don't really know. Scripture doesn't say. I can only imagine what that was like. But we do know that Isaac is laying on the altar. He's bound. Abraham has the knife. He's drawn it back to slam. And at the last minute, God says, do not lay a hand on him. Stop what you're doing. God says, I know you fear me because you have not withheld even your son, your only son, Isaac. And in just the nick of time, God delivers a substitute. Abraham looks over and he sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he sacrifices the ram in Isaac's place and makes the ram a burnt offering. Then Abraham names the place Yahweh Urah, or you may have heard Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. In fact, that's the same phrase that he used earlier when he told Isaac, the Lord will provide. He used that same phrase, Yahweh Urah, the Lord will provide. I want to put this passage up side by side with a passage from 1 Peter and see again how this was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By His wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. See, in both situations, God made a substitute. This is the most important connection between the two stories, that God provided a substitute. But this is also where the stories of Isaac and Jesus are completely different. See, Isaac didn't have to go through with it. Isaac wasn't slain on the altar. God provided a substitute for Isaac. God didn't provide a substitute for Jesus. Jesus was the substitute for you and for me. See, God didn't yell from heaven, don't lay a hand on him as the soldiers beat him. God didn't yell, don't touch him, as they whipped him. And the bones and the stones and the whip tore the flesh from his back. God didn't say, hey, look, there's a ram over in that thicket. Sacrifice it instead as they nailed him to the cross. Jesus was the lamb. Jesus was the substitute for you and for me. See, the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death and that you and I are sinners. You and I are broken We've all put our own thoughts, feelings, and emotions over what God has declared to be true. And because of that, we all owe a debt. We all owe a debt to a perfect and righteous God. But Jesus, 
the Lamb of God personally carried our sins on the cross. And if we put our faith in Him and trust in His substitution for us, then we can be made right with God. And so if you've never done that, if you've never received the gift that God offers through the Lamb, I pray that you do that today. We'll have leaders up front. We'd love to talk with you after the service. I'm sure the person who invited you today would love to have that conversation as well. For those of us who have already received that gift, I want to remind you that you and I were saved for a purpose so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross just to substitute for us, although he did, that was the most important thing. But he, he died so that we could be free from sin, so that we could live for what is right. And so my prayer for you and for me this week is that we would live for what is right, that we would talk to people about this amazing substitutionary gift, and that we would pause and thank God anew for the sacrifice for us. Let's pray.